We are not going to learn more about the world, about the country, about ourselves, if we are simply exposed to people who agree with us. So this is why every night I watch Fox News, because I know if I watch MSNBC or CNN, that my entire worldview will be confirmed. And by that, I mean, you know, it's not going to get me more learning, more wisdom, more understanding. Jonathan Zimmerman on Heterodox Out Loud. I'm Zach Rausch. Today, John helps us expose and explode myths held about the beliefs and attitudes of working-class students. We discuss why social class is one of the last acceptable prejudices in many academic circles and what we can do about it. Our guest today is Jonathan Zimmerman, professor of history of education at the University of Pennsylvania. John has written numerous books, including The Amateur Hour, A History of College Teaching in America, and Free Speech, and Why You Should Give a Damn. He has also written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Philadelphia Inquirer, The Chronicle of Higher Education, New York Review of Books, and The Atlantic. John's work examines how education practices and policies have developed in recent years, and the myths that often cloud our understanding of teaching and learning. He has a special interest in how political and social movements shape education. Before we chat, here's John's blog post, Listening to Our Working Class Students, read by Richard Davies. I recently had lunch with a student who was in my first-year seminar three years ago. The course, Why College? Historical and Contemporary Perspectives, explores the purposes and dilemmas of higher education across space and time. My student is a senior now, so I asked him what he had learned about college since he took my class. He paused for a moment, gathering his thoughts. Privileged people have the privilege to deny the American dream, he replied, but some of us are actually living it. He's the son of two immigrants from Latin America who came here with nothing as young adults and worked low-wage service jobs. They're not rich now, but they have earned enough to buy a house and, with lots of scholarship help, to send him to an expensive Ivy League school. That's not the kind of tale my student has heard very often in his classes, which focus heavily on the inequities and bigotries of America. But there's one bigotry they almost never address. The one against people like him. Immigrant and working-class students who rise up the economic ladder run counter to the dominant narrative about America at elite institutions like my own. So we tend to omit their stories, even as we admit more students who have lived them. The irony here should be obvious. Our campaigns to diversify the student body aim to make the country more just, fair, and equitable. We want to help students from less advantaged backgrounds participate more fully in the bounty of America. But after they get to America, we tell them that the whole game is an elaborate hoax and that people with privilege always win it. Let's be clear. America is a radically unequal nation— 
as a wide swath of research confirms it has become harder for poor and working-class people to own homes, access higher education, and increase their real wages. But it is not impossible. Suggesting otherwise denies the lived experience of our working-class and first-generation students. To quote a favorite academic buzz phrase, it makes them think that they don't belong here, even though they do. But don't expect to hear much about that at your next faculty seminar about diversity, inclusion, and equity. There's lots of talk about making less advantaged students feel at home, of course. Yet most of it focuses on material issues like food insecurity and the cost of books or on raising awareness about microaggressions and other slights racial and ethnic minorities suffer. All of that comes from a good place. Of course we should make sure that our students have enough money, or swipes on their ID cards, to purchase meals and books. And we should also inform people about the types of comments that offend minorities. For example, asking a student whether they got in because of affirmative action won't make them feel valued or accepted as a member of the academic community. But neither will blanket statements about the inequities of America or the inability of poorer Americans to rise above them. That insults students like the one I took to lunch, who know, again from their own experience, that it's not true. And the more we repeat it, the less welcome they will feel. Ditto for the rest of the received liberal wisdom on our campuses, which students from less advantaged backgrounds often don't share. According to the 2021 American Values Survey by the Public Religion Research Institute, working-class students are more likely than other Americans to favor restrictions on immigration and abortion. They're also more likely to trust the police. That includes black Americans, who are significantly less liberal than white progressives. They're more likely to favor gun rights and capital punishment, and they're less likely to support same-sex marriage. Even on race, they're generally more conservative than white progressives. They're less likely to endorse affirmative action and other forms of special assistance for minorities, and they're also less likely to agree that diversity has made America a better place. But as we bring a broader array of Americans to our campuses, including those from working-class backgrounds, we should also welcome the wide range of perspectives that they can contribute. That's one of the key goals of affirmative action itself, of course. In an article quoted in Regents of the University of California versus Bakke, the landmark 1978 Supreme Court decision upholding the use of race in admissions, Princeton's then-president, William G. Bowen, wrote that diversifying the campus would help students, quote, to learn from their experiences and to stimulate one another to re-examine even their most deeply held assumptions about themselves and their world. But that may not happen if we dismiss the attitudes and experiences of our less advantaged students out of hand. It won't happen if we assert that anyone who supported Donald Trump, a hugely popular president among the working class, was stupid or ill-informed. And it surely won't happen if we insist that the entire game is rigged, which bears an ironic echo to Trump himself. 
I'm not suggesting that we should treat disadvantaged students with kid gloves, of course, or that we should refrain from challenging their assumptions. That patronizes the students, all in the guise of protecting them. Like the rest of us, they're here to learn, and that means confronting ideas and attitudes that we may not share. But we do owe them respect, not ridicule. Openly racist and sexist remarks have become taboo on our campuses, and appropriately so. But you can still get away with wildly prejudicial pronouncements about working-class Americans, especially if they're from the South. Quoting a white working-class scholar, law professor Joan C. Williams writes, quote, Professors who would never let a racist comment pass their lips openly embrace the stereotype of the Southern redneck as racist, sexist, alcoholic, ignorant, and lazy. Redneck jokes may be the last acceptable ethnic slurs in polite society. Unquote. Other acceptable prejudices include those against evangelical Christians, overweight people, and gun enthusiasts. At their root, many of these biases are really about social class. Those people, always those people, come from the wrong side of the tracks. They're stupid, bigoted, and intolerant. And worst of all, they're patriotic. They're too dense to understand how bad America really is. We need to talk about those different perspectives instead of simply dismissing them. A Mormon student once told me that his peers routinely ask him if he really believes in the story of Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints. Would anyone on our campuses ever ask a Muslim student if she really believes in the Koran? I doubt it. A working-class white student reported that people assumed his parents had voted for Trump, even though they hadn't, and also asked him how he could live in a community with so much racism. And a veteran of the Iraq War said students asked why he had acted as an agent of imperialism instead of inquiring about why he had chosen to serve in the first place. Those are the kinds of claims we need to surface in our classrooms. We should encourage our working-class students to share their experiences so more people are aware of them. And most of all, we should subject class-based stereotypes and myths to the same scrutiny that racial, ethnic, and gender ones receive. Nowhere is there more intense silence about the reality of class differences than in educational settings, wrote the great essayist and feminist activist Bell Hooks, who died late last year. It's time to speak up for our working-class students, and most of all, to listen to them. We'll all be better for it. Richard Davies narrating Jonathan Zimmerman's blog post, Listening to Our Working Class Students. Now, my interview with John. John, thank you so much for uh, coming on to Heterodox Out Loud. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'd love to just... Uh, for you to give us some context about yourself and how you ended up coming and becoming involved with Heterodox Academy. Well, um, I'm a historian, and most of all, I'm a teacher. And 
although this is going to sound very pedestrian, the way I became involved in Heterodox Academy was through my own classroom, because one of the things that I noticed was that there were a lot of questions and a lot of theories that had essentially been placed out of bounds because people either didn't know about them or were afraid to talk about them. And that is not good for human learning. My job as an educator is to help my students learn more. And I felt that um, uh, um, for a whole variety of reasons that the classrooms had become quite stilted, um, quite univocal, um, and that that wasn't good for people's learning or their development. You've written a number of pieces, not just for us, on issues of social class in higher ed. Why is this a topic you care about and where does this fit in? Well, um, it, it's a topic I care about in part because we have such a hard time talking about it. When I was coming up as a historian in the late 80s, early 90s, that's when I was in graduate school, there was this um, burst of something called the new social history. And the new social history was an attempt to draw our attention to the triad that became known as race, class, gender. And I have to say, Zach, that almost sounds antiquarian now because it's race, gender. Class, for the most part, fell out of our purview of discussion, not entirely, but it didn't have the same place as a leg in the triad. And I think there are all kinds of reasons for that, including, frankly, the very salutary new attention to matters of race. Look, you know, I think this thing called the racial reckoning, however you're defining it, I mean, that's one of the greatest things that's happened in America. You know, the fact that we're now taking a much more serious account of the role of race and racism in our society. So let's talk a little bit more about what you see as the biggest issues around social class in higher ed today. I think the biggest issue is the kind of contradiction that I probed in the piece. And the piece begins with a discussion that I had with um, one of my students, one of my all-time favorite students, actually, just a fantastic guy, who was in my uh, first-year seminar three years ago and just graduated. And I, I asked him, I said, what have you learned about college since our course? And his answer, I thought, was really revealing. He said, what I learned is how much privilege you need to have in order to deny the American dream. He said, some of us are actually living that dream. But one of the things that happens at elite universities is you're encouraged to, in a very real sense, deny it. Especially in the humanities and social sciences, America is depicted as a highly stratified, highly unequal place, which it is. It is. That's not wrong, right? But I think the point here is that those aren't totalizing restrictions, People do move between classes. Um, and indeed, this student's own experience was an illustration of that. His story is in many ways a counter to this kind of dominant paradigm of negativity that runs through much of what we do. And he couldn't find his own story and the stories he was hearing in the classroom. It seems like you were, you were saying with there's the paradigm of race, class, and gender, and it's just become race and gender. But in some ways, it really does sound like there is a narrative around class. It's just quite limited. 
it is quite limited. And, you know, I, I also think, and I think there's survey data showing this, that despite the paradigm of social determinism that runs through so much of what we do, when it comes to social class, we're actually more comfortable with blaming people for their own circumstance. This is what's so ironic about the way all of this works. You know, a good-hearted liberal in American Academy would never blame a poor African-American for, say, living in a neighborhood where there's lots of gun violence. We would say, no, that isn't the fault, certainly not of the kid, like, like God forbid, right? And nobody should have to live in circumstances like that. And that's all true. I believe all of that, right? Um, but the majority of working class and the majority of poor people in this country are not people of color. They're white. And it's much more likely that they'll be poor if they live in rural environs rather than in um, urban ones. These are all facts as well. And yet, ironically and sadly, I think we're more likely to blame somebody who grows up, say, in rural Kentucky in a community decimated by both deindustrialization and opioids, we're more likely to blame that human being for their circumstances than an urban person of color. To you, like, what are the leading causes for this disconnect of this willingness to be more prejudicial towards those groups of people? And is it just that we have less interaction at elite universities? We just are kind of ignorant. I think the simplest explanations in these things are generally the best ones, right? Um, like how many poor rural white people go to the University of Pennsylvania? To be clear, there are some. I've taught them. Very few. And of course, this also has to do with the way that we cut the affirmative action pie. So, you know, when you find working class kids in a place like Penn, they're almost always people of color. We're starting to talk about the connection between class and viewpoint diversity and kind of the connection to Heterodox Academy. So what is the relationship between the two? And to what extent is social class viewpoint diversity really useful for universities to help further their mission? How could you look at the past six years of political history and conclude anything other than we have radically segregated ourselves into ideological uh, um, bubbles. The elite universities are at the heart of that problem. They are themselves ideological bubbles. This is why so many of us were surprised by the Trump phenomenon. And this is why so many of us still struggle to understand it, because we're not around enough Trump voters. And the Trump voters are... Um, overwhelmingly come from these communities. Great predictor of whether you voted for Trump was rurality, whether you lived in a rural place, and also whether you had formal education, which has become a you know the prime marker of social class in this nation. Um, this is why Trump said, "I love uneducated people," and you know, like so many things that Trump said, there was wisdom in the madness. Right. A lot of us heard that and said, like, aren't you sort of making a brief for ignorance? And I think that's one way to read it. Another way to read it is just actually, I think, an honest assessment of the way that we've divided ourselves as a culture. And so if you're talking about the ideas of Heterodox Academy, which is I understand them at the most pedestrian level, is 
to expose all of us to a wider array of viewpoints so that we all learn more, which, by the way, is the rationale of affirmative action, too, just saying, then, you know, you need more Trumpers. I can't put it any other way. We're not going to learn from each other, right, if we're just reading about Trumpers in the paper. As you discussed in the post, many lower income Americans are less likely to hold a lot of the values that liberal progressive Americans hold. And so if you were to try to convince or talk to somebody who is a professor who holds progressive viewpoints, what make the case for why it's valuable to invite those perspectives into... Well, look, I mean, this is the whole raison d'etre of HXA. I mean, let me begin my answer, Zach, by saying I am a progressive uh, professor. I mean, you know, um, uh, uh, if you go on to like Americans for Democratic Action, you take their test about like how democratic you are, by the way, with a capital D, I'm like 97%, you know, like pro-gun control, like pro-environmental regulation, you know, pro-choice, uh, you know, uh, come on. I mean, you know, like I'm, I'm like I'm Jewish. I have a PhD. I'm like a caricature of a liberal Democrat. That's what I am. Zach, I'm a cartoon. Okay. So I'm no different in that way from my colleagues, right? In, in terms of, uh, let's just say my fundamental political beliefs, except for one of them. And the one where we differ is that all of us will learn more if we're exposed to people that are not like us. We are not going to learn more about the world, about the country, about ourselves, if we are simply exposed to people who agree with us. So this is why every night I watch Fox News. Because I know if I watch MSNBC or CNN, that my entire worldview will be confirmed. You know, it's not going to get me more learning, more wisdom, more understanding. So what do you think are the most important steps that I guess we could start at the university level or at the level of the professor uh, to improve this disconnect between, I guess, more elite universities and our working class students? So one of the things I did after 2016 at Penn, I was so distraught by the lack of real discussion about the election. We partnered with Cairn University, formerly Philadelphia Bible College, and we brought a bunch of Penn students out to Cairn, and we brought a bunch of Cairn students to Penn. And, you know, Philadelphia Bible College, it's, it's a, uh, obviously, uh, as per the name, uh, you know, it's, it's a, um, historically a mission university. It's an evangelical university. It has a very different political profile than Penn. And, you know, especially now where um, uh, it's so much easier to connect on the Internet, we have no excuse for not doing this. One of the things that I've tried to do is just bring in as many different voices to my classroom as I possibly can. Every theory of learning that I've ever seen, every credible one, would indicate that people will learn much more if they do just what I described than if they remain in their bubbles. I've never seen a a credible theory of learning that suggests otherwise. We know that. We just don't have the political will to do it. I mean, here's the great contradiction that's run through my work. That activity that I just described speaking across our differences and trying to learn more about views that 
We don't necessarily share. Critiquing the other team and ourselves. That's what I call democratic education with a small d. Democratic education is what we need to prepare ourselves as citizens in a democracy. And it involves learning about each other and learning to communicate with each other. Bottom line, what do you want our audience to take away from your work on this topic and of what you've been saying today? Well, I think the first thing is exposing yourself um, more deeply, more rigorously, and more empathetically to the 74 million people that voted differently from you. More human beings than than voted ever for a sitting president voted for Donald Trump. It's just that Biden got more because the turnout was so high. That's a huge swath of your country women and country men. My appeal to you is do more for yourself, for your family, for your students, to expose yourself to that so that you can understand it. If you don't do that, I do believe that you're not being true to what I understand as the goal of both the humanities in particular and the university in general. There's a reason it's called the university. It's supposed to be universal. The ideal, going back to the ancients, nothing that's human is alien to me. Nothing. Nothing. And if it is, I'm not doing my job. For those who feel either disempowered or extremely frustrated with people who classify themselves as anti-woke kind of crowd, what what would you say to them in this context? I would say that don't caricature liberal progressives at the academy, because that's the mirror image, right, of the way that we have caricatured you. It is true that there are some super doctrinaire, super orthodox, super indoctrinating liberal progressives in the academy. The anti-woke people are not wrong about that. They are right. But that doesn't describe all of us. There are plenty of liberal progressives that are deeply dissatisfied with the tone of politics and culture on our campuses, that want to change it to admit more viewpoints. So I would say to the anti-woke people, look, I hear you, and you've identified a real problem, but don't exaggerate the problem. Don't totalize it. And most of all, don't make blanket assumptions about people like me Because again, if you looked at my CV and you looked at my background, you would say, there's like a woke professor that wants to indoctrinate wokeness. One of the like enduring hurdles and obstacles of our time is our knee-jerk caricaturing of each other. And I do believe that some of the anti-woke people are engaged in a similar project. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And thanks to you, Zach, for everything that you're doing. I deeply appreciate it. Jonathan Zimmerman on Heterodox Out Loud. If you enjoyed this episode, find more and listen at our website, heterodoxacademy.org. Thanks to Davies Content for producing this podcast and to Kara Boyer on our communications team. 
I'm Zach Roush. Until next time.